1: Ben brings the message today, God, that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. What a, what a joy, what a privilege it is to be here this morning. I'm so grateful for our worship team that led us into our time this morning. And, and I'm so fired up about this First Corinthians series that we've been in this morning. We're going to kick off in Chapter 7, and we get to talk about a topic that, that I'm very passionate about um, as, as we dive into marriage. Pastor Tony, he, he echoed um, what, what I, along with so many others, say about marriage last week in his message that marriage is, is really intended to be a tangible illustration and an expression of the relationship we're to have with the Lord. right? If, if you remember, if you were here last week, if you joined us last week, you saw the, the graph that Pastor Tony shared where we were looking at the relationship between a, a marriage or a wedding ceremony and our salvation. We can see the relationship that exists between those two, the similarities and really how God gave us marriage so that we would better understand salvation in this way so again this morning we're going to be in chapter seven you can go ahead and if you have your bibles you can turn to first corinthians chapter seven if you have your your phones you can open up your bible app and turn there you can also follow along in your worship guide Um, and and while this morning's message while this morning's topic is is looking at marriage and really why marriage i want i want you to all know that this topic is for everyone this passage of scripture is for everybody We'll see that throughout this scripture, which, or throughout this passage, which I'll kind of be jumping around throughout those, those 16 verses, but we see where, where Paul is also talking about and he's addressing singlehood throughout this passage. Because marriage is, is intended to be so much more than just two people who, who fall in love that, that say they want to spend the rest of their lives together. Marriage, marriage is supposed to be something so much more than that, and hopefully what we'll see this morning is how marriage kind of parallels, really, the relationship we're to have with Christ. Christ is the bridegroom, and us, his church, as the bride. But just like, just like almost anything good, right, we, we, take, we take marriage, we take something good, and we mar it, and we, we scuff it, and eventually we ruin it. You know, just consider some, some disturbing statistics about marriage, right? You know, first of all, the divorce rate marriage continues to hover around 50%. The one demographic that kind of keeps that from skyrocketing even higher is evangelical Christians. The, the average length of a marriage now in the U.S. is eight years. Eight years. Couples are only sticking it out eight years. Nearly 70% of couples are now living together before they get married. And and we've kind of watered and diluted this down to thinking it's not that bad. But when we look at those numbers, 72% of those couples that are living together or sexually active before marriage, they end up getting divorced. Here's here's another thing. We've we've introduced this term kind of more as an informal diagnosis, um, but, but there's this term that we use called a serial monogamist. A serial monogamous. This person develops patterns of engaging in short-term marriages, several short-term marriages, practices monogamy in all of those marriages, but ends up having multiple sexual partners throughout his lifetime. Serial monogamy. Right? I mean, that, that's, that, that's how distorted and twisted we've, we've gotten with our attitudes towards marriage. And we, we might we might consider some of these statistics or some of these trends and and, and think that, that we've we've really gone off the deep end but what we'll find is is it's really not all that unique to this time and culture. I mean we, we look the, the passage kicks off this morning look at first Corinthians chapter seven verse one this simple statement says now for the matters you wrote about now for the matters you wrote about here's the thing we don't know what the, the people in the Corinthian church we don't know what they asked Paul we don't, we don't see what they had asked, but, but we can assume, we can, we can surmise some, some questions they might have asked based on Paul's response, based on some of the instructions we're going to get from Paul, also based on some of the things that we know, we know about the, the, the depravity that the Corinthian church was walking in. They were probably asking questions similar to the questions we ask, right? They were probably asking questions like, you know, how far is too far to go with the girlfriend or boyfriend? right or if i've already been married or if i'm older or if i'm not a virgin do do the rules of celibacy still apply to me right or or maybe they were asking you know what what if what if we're just really unhappy and we've tried everything you know aren't there some biblical grounds for divorce in other words probably what their questions were were how close can i get to the line before it's a sin Right, how, how close can I, can I get before I, before I cross over that line? And why is it that as Christians, why is it that we're constantly trying to figure out, how can I tow the line? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't we want to be as far away from that line as possible? Isn't that kind of what sanctification and holiness is, being set apart? And so again, as, as we press into this passage this morning, we're, we're going to see, unfortunately, in some ways, how our views and our attitudes towards marriage within the church it, 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 it's very similar to what we're seeing within the Corinthian church. We, we, we talked over the last couple of weeks about some of the, the, the incredible immoralities that were happening within the church the incest, the temple prostitutes, the, this utter depravity and fornication within the church. So, what are the instructions that are given to us here? in marriage and, and and I want us to, to notice one thing and this is kind of this overarching fundamental principle that we need to understand about marriage. First off, marriage and you can write this down, marriage is not about me. Marriage is not about me. Right? We we live in a very me centric society. Right? We say things like we gotta look out for number one when we're talking about ourselves. We kinda have this this whiffum mentality, the what's in it for me mentality. Years ago, a, a psychologist named Dr. John Gottman, he wrote a book called "The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work." And this, this book is based off of this incredible research that, that Gottman and his team did over the course of 12 years with, with nearly 200 couples who all, who all varied in, in age and in, um, in, in culture, in race, in number of years married, in number of marriages and other variables. And, and the, the, work, the, the work from his research, it's fascinating, it's very pragmatic, I've used some of it as even curriculum and courses that I've taught, but, but what he and his research group discovered was this fundamental reason for all conflict within marriages that ultimately lead to divorce. Anyone have any idea what the fundamental issue that exists within all marriages is? Selfishness. Selfishness. I mean, are are any of us really surprised by this? Of course we're not. That's why I kind of mockingly said that Gottman discovered it, right? In in fact, it says in James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, why do you fight and argue with each other? Isn't it because you're full of selfish desires that fight to control your body? Our selfishness will oftentimes surface most in our marriage. Because we think about marriage the way we think about everything else. Our own happiness, our own desires, our own completion. And and, and Paul addresses kind of this fallacy early on in verse 3 when he says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. I mean, we're already seeing how this parallels the relationship that Christ has with us. right? Christ, the bridegroom, has fulfilled his duties to his bride. To us, the church. He continues to fulfill those duties through the works of his Holy Spirit. And so, us as the bride of Christ, we need to work to fulfill our duties to our bridegroom. Right? Paul's Paul's wanting to make sure we fully understand that marriage is not about me. Furthermore, marriage is not only about my desires. Marriage is not only about my desires. Paul says this in in verse 1 and 2. Paul says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now, I kind of get the impression that Paul really doesn't feel like he should have to be saying this to the church. He, he, He really feels like this should be pretty obvious stuff. Right? But again, he's reminding them just how out of control they've become—far too promiscuous, far too adulterous. It's why he says later on in verses eight and nine, he says, "Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." Right? Meaning that if if, if they can't control, like their lustful and their fleshful desires, then, then it would be better to honor one another. And, and marry one another. But again, we get so caught up in thinking that, that marriage is about primarily meeting my desires, namely my sexual desires. And, and so like the Corinthian church, who had become so corrupt and almost pornographic in, in their, their understanding of sexuality, Paul's having to address this to the church as a whole. And I'm afraid that we as a culture have become far too sexualized as well. It seems like that topic has seeped itself into every outlet and every medium. So furthermore marriage is not about my completion. Marriage is not about my completion. We think that marriage is going to make us whole. Marriage is going to make us complete. Many of us are going to be familiar with this with this famous love scene from Jerry Maguire. We can watch this together.
0: I love you. You
1: I just had... shut up. Just shut
0: up. You had me at hello. Isn't
1: that sweet? I mean, that's that's such a good line for a Hollywood movie, but it's a horrible expectation for marriage. It's a horrible expectation for marriage. Look, look what Paul says in verse seven. Paul says, "I wish that all of you were as I am." But each of you has your own gift from God. One has his gift and another has that. Paul is actually calling his state of singleness, his state of celibacy, a gift. He's calling it a gift. And listen, marriage is a tremendous gift as well. We, we see back in Genesis when, when God created Eve, Adam looked at Eve. He took one look at her and he wrote kind of almost as if he's writing a lyric to a love song. He wrote this in Genesis 2.23. When he saw Eve, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? He looked at Eve and he said, I, I, I like Eve. I want that, right? I, 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 I want that gift. Marriage, marriage is a tremendous gift, but Paul's also letting us know in this passage that so is singleness. Singleness is a gift. And, and, and for many, this is hard because we, we think that marriage will, will complete us. It will satisfy us. And so what we might say is that while both Marriage and singleness are gifts. One is a gift we don't use, and another is a gift we don't want. Right? Marriage marriage is this this gift that we don't fully recognize, and so we don't fully use it to its potential. And singleness is this gift that we don't want because we will feel incomplete or lacking. Again, getting caught up in thinking that our lives are all about us. My marriage doesn't complete me. I love my wife. I love my wife. And certainly she complements some areas in which I'm weak. Right? There, there are several areas in which my weaknesses are her strengths, and then there are some areas in which my strengths are her weaknesses, but we share some strengths, we also share some weaknesses. I don't complete her, nor does she complete me. So what is Paul teaching us here about marriage? And I want us to look at these three things briefly this morning. First of all, marriage makes us humble. Marriage makes us humble. It's the opposite of selfishness. Right? Paul is going to address this. Kind of track with me here. Paul's going to address this in a somewhat uncomfortable way. I mean, look what he says here in verse 4. It's interesting how he says it. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Right. Husbands and wives yield the authority of their own bodies to one another. that. that that seems like a humbling act, right? To yield your own bodies to someone, to yield something of of great value over to someone else, that's humility. And and I love how kind of Peter um, encourages us to to practice humility. He says it like this in 1 Peter 5.5. He says to clothe yourself with humility towards one another. You know, certainly that's spoken to the church, but as, as Christians, husbands, and wives, we should be practicing humility to one another, literally putting on humility like we would a piece of clothing, right? Like, like a shirt, like a, like a pair of pants. We're literally putting on the, these, this, this action, this attribute of humility. And so what does this look like, right? What, is, what does humility look like? Is it, is it things that we do for one another? Is it, you know, opening the door for her? Is it washing the dishes even when you cooked? Is it, you know, not playing golf on your one day off? Is it, uh, like not at the, at the end of the night, like when you're sitting there together, putting your phones aside so you're not just like scrolling through meaningless reels. You know, maybe. May, maybe those are acts of, of humility. But I really think that, that marriage is intended to help us kind of understand this deeper condition of humility, a deeper condition of our heart, more so than, than any kind of remedial task that we, we do for one another. Again, Paul kind of addresses this in a a somewhat uncomfortable way in verse 5. He says this, he says, Do not deprive each other, meaning of sexual intimacy, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's an interesting implication that Paul is making here. Right, Paul is implying that couples should be talking or are talking about their sexual intimacy together. Because by saying that couples shouldn't deprive one another unless they agree upon it, unless there's mutual consent, he's implying that husbands and wives are having these discussions with one another. Now here's a silly reality. Married couples, Christian married couples, go into marriage with the expectation of experiencing sexual intimacy. That's a good thing but not necessarily with the expectation to discuss and talk about sexual intimacy. And, and there's, there's a humbling act that goes on here where we have to let down our guard and practice this kind of humility towards one another, but really the key here is for prayer. That's the key. That's really what Paul is getting at here, is the goal, the charge in Paul's instruction here is for the purpose of prayer. Prayer must be a part of every Christian couple's life together. And if you've heard me speak ever on marriage, I know I sound like a broken record over and over and over again. But it has to be the most common thing that couples do together is pray together. It has to be so common that the thought of of scheming and planning fasting together, even fasting from sex together in order to pray, is not like an abnormal thing for us to talk about. Right? It has to be such a common place in, in, our, in our lives. And in some ways, we would say that prayer is the most humbling thing that we do because we humbly submit to God when we acknowledge him as our provider when we pray over our meal. Right? We humbly submit to God when we acknowledge that he's our protector when we're praying over our kids. We humbly submit to God when he acknowledged that he's our healer when we're praying for healing. And so when, when we pray together, when, when couples pray together, they're submitting to God. They're humbling themselves before God. Here's another thing that we see in this passage, that marriage makes us faithful. Marriage makes us faithful. The, the most common of all wedding vows, and my wife and I said this to, to one another in our wedding, it's, it's I, husband, I, Ben, take you, Jen, take you, wife, to be my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live and thereto I pledge my faith it ends with with this statement of unwavering faith we pledge this lifelong covenant with one another marriage is intended to be for life it's why paul says in verse 10 that a wife must not separate from her husband but if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife right paul's kind of addressing a similar issue that we see even within the church that people were far too flippant about marriage they had diluted marriage down and so in the times of the Corinthian church, people were, were marrying and divorcing at will. Now listen, the Bible, the Bible addresses biblical grounds for divorce. In Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, it talks about sexual immorality and, and unfaithfulness and adultery. Certainly also what we know about the character of God, what we know throughout Scripture, is that God would never be okay or advocate for a woman or, or children to be in an abusive home. We would always encourage immediate separation with the hope that there would be repentance and reconciliation. Right? But, but more often than not, these are not the reasons that we see so much divorce. Because we still have this flippant attitude, this diluted attitude about, about marriage. You know, certainly within our culture, we see celebrities seem to like marry and cheat and divorce at will. And I'm afraid that this has bled over into the church. That in many ways, marriage is is way undervalued that the the covenant relationship is not emphasized see a, co- a covenant and a contract are two different things a contract is only contingent whether or not we both agree on things a covenant relationship is contingent only whether or not i have breath in my lungs that's it that, that's the relationship that god entered in with us but but couples don't understand this and so they become satisfied with with living together in playing house And what they don't realize is they're robbing themselves of the joy that exists within that covenant faithful relationship. Look how God establishes this covenant relationship with us. I mean, we can go back to the very beginning in Genesis when God created us, and he created us in his own image. That was him establishing his covenant with us, and then Jesus firmly establishes this through communion. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 22. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, this cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. He's demonstrating this covenant relationship by, by literally sharing all of himself with us, and we're to do the same. He makes this covenant relationship with us that's rooted in love and faithfulness, and marriage is this wonderful way to help us better understand that covenant relationship. Many of you know the, the name Coach John Wooden. Coach John Wooden was the, the, the winningest college football coach of all time, uh, or basketball coach of all time. My only complaint is that he coached for UCLA, not USC. Uh, that doesn't mean anything to you guys, though. But, but some of you are familiar with the love story that exists between John and his wife, Nell. John and, and Nell were, were married in 1932, and they remained together 53 years until Nell's passing in 1985. And, and Coach Wooden, he remained true to his word, and there, there was never another, as he said. Nell passed away on March 21st, 1985, and on the 21st of each month thereafter, John would write a love letter to Nell, and he would put it under her pillow on her side of the bed. He did this for 25 years. When, when Coach Wooden died, there were nearly 300 letters that were under her pillow. Right? It, it seems like Coach Wooden had this deep love for the covenant that he had made with his wife some 78 years prior. And, and because marriage is intended to help us illustrate this faithfulness that we, so we can better understand the undying and unwavering commitment that God has with us, it's why God says to us in Jeremiah I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. It's why God says in Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. And so if marriage really does best illustrate the relationship we're to have with the Lord, then our commitment to one another, it must strive to be met with this everlasting love and this unfailing kindness towards one another. Here's a final thing that I want us to look at this morning as it relates to this passage, is that marriage makes us holy. Marriage makes us holy. We are are called to be holy. That's our greatest charge as Christians, to be holy as God is holy. This is why. It goes back to Paul's state of singleness. This is why Paul says, again, I'll I'll repeat it, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to be unmarried as I am. He's saying this because what's most important is my relationship with the Lord, and nothing should get in the way of that. I want you to be so laser-focused on being holy before God. I don't want anything to distract you. Right? That's what's most important. But but we'll see in this passage also how marriage should point us even towards holiness. One of my favorite books on on the topic of marriage, it continues to be sacred marriage by Gary Thomas. And, And and you'll see here that the premise of this book is addressing this question: what if God designed marriage to make us holy? more than to make us happy. I mean, it's such a a radical but a simple concept to consider, right? What if marriage was intended to make us holy more than it is to make us happy? There's There's an interesting few verses here in this passage that we see starting in verse 12. Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now listen to this. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now there's a few things that we could press into here, but I, I do want to mention that sanctification here does not mean salvation. right? It doesn't mean that the unsaved spouse is saved because of the saved spouse. But it does mean that that unsaved spouse has been sanctified, has been set apart to see the person of Jesus Christ in, in, in the salvation of the saved spouse. So if you, have a, if you have a saved wife and an unsaved husband, that unsaved husband has the opportunity to see the person of Jesus and the fruits of the Holy Spirit day in and day out through the, the life that is lived by his wife, right? And, and similarly, with, with our children, right? If there's, if there's, um, if, if there's a lost parent and a saved parent in a home, the children will get to be exposed to the person of Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is intended to be so much more than just two people who are trying to make one another happy. Marriage is intended to reveal to one another these deeper attributes and characteristics of the person of Jesus Christ and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just consider what Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The charge here is that husbands would make their wives holy, not just happy. Right? We're all familiar with the silly phrase, happy wife, happy life. Right? It's cute because it rhymes. It's a horrible mantra for marriage. It's not what God intended marriage to be, much more than happiness, but holiness. And so how? How do we experience this kind of holiness? It's through experiencing oneness. right? A husband and a wife, they become one in a marriage. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become one with him. It's what Jesus prayed in the garden the night he was betrayed. Look at this. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me, through there meaning the disciples message that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you to be holy before Christ is to be one with Christ holiness with God is oneness with God and this is why marriage is such a wonderful tangible illustration and expression of the relationship we're to have with the Lord I want you to imagine for a moment you're at a wedding ceremony The groom has walked in with the pastor, demonstrating that the groom is walking in, allowing the Lord to lead him and guide him in this marriage. Because you see, the the groom is, is the expression, the groom is the representation of Christ in the marriage. And he takes his place, and then the bride comes walking in. Right? And all eyes go to her. The groom is proud of his beautiful bride, and Is overcome with emotion and the bride walks lovingly and eagerly towards her groom because you see the bride is the the image or the representation of the church in a marriage and the groom looks with adoration on his wife as Christ does the church I'll say it again that Jesus presents her the church the bride to himself in Christ the bridegroom as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Such grace. They come together, they stand before a pastor signifying that they are standing before the Lord, submitting and surrendering their lives before the Lord, and they've gathered their friends and their families around as a public demonstration to let everyone know about the covenant that they're making before the Lord and one another. And in this moment, anytime I'm standing before a couple and I'm officiating a wedding, I always remind the couple that as beautiful and as wonderful as this moment is, before it has anything to do with the two of them, it has more to do with the two of them. Right? That marriage is so much more than a, a civil ceremony that ends with this legal document. Marriage is this holy moment in which these two lives mysteriously and miraculously become one. That's why Paul says this in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Listen, the Christian life is is about this mysterious and miraculous oneness. Us, the bride of Christ, being one and hid in Christ. A a Christian marriage gives us this illustration, this beautiful illustration of oneness. And so in a a wedding ceremony, the groom and the bride, they they walk in separately. They're individuals, but there's something, there's something miraculous. There's something mysterious that happens in a wedding ceremony. And I'm afraid too often we miss it due to the commonality of, of a marriage ceremony. But there's a moment in which these two individuals are no longer two, but they become They become one. They become a husband and wife in a single marriage. Right? They make some very simple statements towards one another. They say their I do's. They repeat their vows. And then this is said. Wherefore, the two of you have committed to this covenant by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I now pronounce you are husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. Listen, when, when we confess, when we confess and we say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and we surrender our lives to him and we yield our very bodies to him, we become one with him. This, this mysterious and miraculous thing happens and, and, and we, then we're baptized as this public demonstration of the love that we have for him and we're overwhelmed with the covenant that he has with us. And so the, the bride and groom, they're announced in, as Mr. and Mrs. The bride takes on his name, and they walk out as one. They, they come in as individuals, they come in separate, and they, they walk out as one. This is this great mystery, this great miracle of, of marriage, but ultimately it's the great mystery, it's the great miracle of salvation. This is why God uses marriage as this tangible illustration and expression of the relationship we're to have with Him. We come to Him individualized. We come to Him apart from Him, living by our own ways, living by our own ideologies, our own philosophies. We surrender to Him and we become one to Him. We, we submit to the eternal bridegroom and we take on His identity. We take on His name. Listen, this morning as, as, as we close, my, my greatest hope, my greatest hope that, that there would be those in here that, that haven't made that declaration, that haven't confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that haven't hidden their life in him and become one with him. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time to respond. Maybe, maybe there's some in here and you realize that in, in, in your own marriage, in your own relationship, you struggled with, with making it something it's not supposed to be. Or, or maybe, maybe you've even struggled in, in your own singleness and, and, and become discouraged and, and hopeless in that not recognizing what our life was really intended to be for. And so as we, as we step into this final worship time, Let let us pray with you. Let let the Holy Spirit work on you and respond in in whatever way. I'm I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna worship. There'll be people forward here to pray with you. Heavenly Father, Jesus, our great bridegroom, us, your bride, Jesus, we submit to you Jesus, we realize that for us to have full joy, for us to be complete, our lives must be hidden in you. So Lord, I pray this morning, you would, you would stir in our hearts, desire to be known by you, to be known as one with you. We're grateful for the life that you give us. God, thank you for the covenant that you established with us from the very beginning. We love you. We surrender to you in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Let's worship and respond. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called The Seven Commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. You know, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing here at Silverdale and we really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please Stay connected be sure to like and follow us on the different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.